Welcome to Escape from Plan A. This is Teen, and got a special episode. Jess is in the house. What's up, Jess? Nothing much. It's, good. it's been good to it's been good to have you back on the wagon. Yeah, yeah. Having opinions again. It's, it's a it's a it's a fun feeling. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, returning guest John Pang. What's going on, John? How's it going? Hi. Good. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'm enjoying enjoying my time. Yeah. Thanks yeah. For, this, yeah. Last one was yeah. A, yeah you were just saying back. last time we did we yeah. we got together was a doozy. Yeah. We, we 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 talked about wow. Sheehan, which I, I heard is now the correct that is the correct term. Uh, Jess had it right all along. It, it actually it was Sheehan. Sheehan. Oh, <laughs> confirmed okay. by Sheehan's social media account. Oh, he said okay. it, we're actually called Sheehan. Oh, um, wow. so the title The Shining no longer works. It's <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> um, <laughs> But I thought we got deep into a good topic, and this one I had another. So, just uh, so John and I actually met up uh, in in upstate New York, not far from where when you came to New York, where we were hang- kind of hanging out, and we all stayed in that cabin in the woods over in uh, upstate, and we got on this conversation that I thought was really intriguing to me, John, and I've been th- kind of thinking about it ever since. Um, which is this sort of, well, it's kind of hard to set up, set the topic up, uh, very succinctly. So maybe that's what the pod is about, even just kind of getting the idea out. But was this talk about biculturalism and John, you're, I always, I've found that your bat, your, your background, your personal background to be a very interesting contrast to diaspora Asian American, because you're, well, you've been in America for, uh, not just once, but many times and for extended periods of time. But your Chinese diaspora, Malaysian, right? Which I which I right. think is very interesting because it's it's also an Anglophone f- diaspora. It is. But but it's very different because you don't you know you're still very you're still in Asia, right? Yes, yes, very much so. And in a a region, a cultural, commercial, a trade region. Very much linked to China, I'd, I'd say, yeah. And on the other hand, we still ha- share this sort of like Anglo backdrop. Yes, to a degree. Yes. I mean, much te- much more attenuated, obviously, in Malaysia versus in America, uh, yes. by a lot, yes. I'd say. But there's yes. still a little bit of that. You know, there's still English itself, and then there's still a sort of, I don't know. I well, I haven't been to Malaysia, so maybe you tell me where where I'm going with this. But uh, the, the extent to which Anglo culture still forms or exerts a kind of influence there. I don't know. No, I love much. the way you, you, you set this up. And um, in the Malaysian case, it's uh, Anglo in the specific sense, as in, as in the UK. Um, and it's that uh, colonial experience, right? Um, as opposed to, to sort of American. But um, of course, we live in a world which is uh, in which the influence is very much um, sort of American now, and um, yeah, as you say, I've I've spent two extended periods here, you know, um, one in the um, uh, from the late 1990s to early two thousands, and uh, and more recently from twenty sixteen to till now. Um, and a good spread of places, it seems. Not just one place. You've been in California. You've been in, was it uh, 
Boston, I think, was it? or uh, Baltimore, actually. <laughs> oh, Baltimore, right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so so Maryland, your, 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 your area, more like, a, you know, where, yeah. near where you grew up. Not um, too far. Maryland, well, I lived in Maryland at one point and then Baltimore, and, but um, uh, quite a bit of time in, in California. So grad school was in California. And then I went back and I, I worked um, and I returned here as I said, um, late, very late 2016, uh, and have been here on the East Coast uh, in New York since. Um, yeah, but that experience, I think, you know, this even the notion of uh, diaspora and of, you know, you, you set it up in, in notes and in conversation earlier in, in very interesting ways and um, about sort of being in between and liminality. And these are not necessarily... Uh, notions or concepts, or lenses through which uh, I, I viewed myself, or, or I would say Malaysian Chinese have, have viewed themselves. But it's really interesting to set them up side by side. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, Jess, I had gone on sort of a rant in the in the group chat <laughs> about this, and uh, you kind of picked. I tagged you in it, and I said, you know, I think you and I should talk about this because I find it very interesting. And the point, look. To set this up in a very simple way, um, I think my point here is if you look at Asian American, a like Asian people in America, Asian diaspora living in America, if you look at our cultural works and you look at the sort of emergent culture that's called Asian American culture, um, which we have been quite critical of on this pod, and, I, and I'm starting to understand more why, I think, is that... Um, a lot of it exists, what John referred to as the liminality, this idea that we're living in a liminal space, an in-between zone, um, caught between two worlds view of, you know, our sort of home Asian culture and American culture itself. We're sort of halfway, not totally one, but not totally the other, etc. It sets up a certain, um, I think that it sets up all sorts of assumptions about how culture actually works. Yes. And I think part of it, and John and I, you were talking about, this is the part that I, our conversation I was thinking about when we were chatting upstate, was when you're, I would say, bicultural, meaning, um, you know, relatively fluent in two different cultures, not just the language, but also just the way that, you know, people in, in these two different cultures, the assumptions that they have, the way they relate to each other, the way, you know, social hierarchies and statuses are navigated, all that stuff. Um that you can't, it's not really easy or possible, I would say, to map everything that's in, say, Chinese culture or Korean culture onto something equivalent in American culture. That's, I think, the fundamental fallacy that I've noticed that I believed in myself for a long time until later, especially as I became more fluent in both cultures, to realize, like, there isn't, and there are things that exist in Chinese culture that simply don't seem to have an equivalent in America. Uh, and and give so, us an example. That's a good. That's a hard one. <laughs> it's so yeah. I know. So, I, I know it's intentionally yeah. hard, but I yeah. think like it's kind of critical to be able to nail down specifics for what we're talking. We're talking about a really kind of like theoretical space here. So it's, let's try you know, to ground this. The reason it's hard is because I can't map it. So I don't know how to explain, like I can't really 
it's not easy for me to break this down into like you know an English concept, right? Um, but like uh, one example um, would be the way that a very simple example, okay, is the the thinking the 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 sort of like thinking and I the the social motivations behind who treats for a particular dinner when it's a group dinner or like a dinner with friends like the how how to like what motivates people to try and grab that check i don't i think a lot of the things that go into that and um the way that grabbing checks can create social debts can sort of is a sort of the signal to the other person that there is going to be another dinner in which you can pick, you know, all that stuff. It, it, it's just doesn't map onto anything in American culture. Like it's not, you know, there's no example of that. That's a very simple example. I mean, I think, but does that make sense? Like it just doesn't seem to work, you know, within American culture. Like it's not, I can't point to, I have some, there are some examples that have, um, I've, We've sometimes, you and I have talked about this in terms of a different ontology, simply in the sense that there are different things in, in, in one world that really don't, don't exist um, in, in the other. Um, you, you can translate it, for example, um, kinship terms. We have different terms for relatives on the father's side and relatives on the mother's side, right? Mm-hmm. Um, your maternal grandfather is called something and your paternal grandfather, your paternal grandfather in Mandarin is your ye ye and your maternal grandfather is your wai kong. These, but, um, so if I translate it into English like that, so it seems as if I have translated it, uh, but I may not. I, have, I, I haven't translated all that is um, uh, implied, all that is of import in, in, in that set of relations. Um, if I say, for example, mm-hmm. ancestor, yeah. Yeah, so it means one thing in, in, in Western language or in English, and especially today in modern times, it sounds rather remote. <laughs> um, it sounds like I'm doing some sort of mythology or I'm LARPing something to speak of ancestors. Um, but if you're me, for example, um, this is uh, something real. Um, you know, my, my ancestors, my uh, genealogy uh, and uh, who is who in that in, in in that ancestry? These are very real things. We have, uh, you know, ancestral uh, shrines. Uh, they are recorded in a certain way in, in in the book, and I have obligations, or I I feel a sense of obligations towards uh, towards. Uh, I have a relationship that wouldn't exist um, that I can't quite um, transmit. But if I talk about it, it sounds like I'm exoticizing myself. Um, um, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. In, in those terms. So those are very real. Those are very, very concrete um, types of, of of thing that exist in one place and not another. And um, I think what's difficult to translate or doesn't quite translate across is um, those relationships. Yeah, yeah. You know, I distinctly remember as a kid, I used to go to this Sunday Chinese language school, mm-hmm. and we had this teacher come from Taiwan. He was very new to the country. And he taught us you, you, in, a, in a very, like, in a way that as an American kid, I just didn't understand what was going on. And I remember he went, I was very young. I forgot how old, maybe like I don't know, third, fourth grade. 
And he goes up to the chalkboard. He writes characters in Chinese, and I forget what they were. And then he writes the English translation, and it was filial piety. Yeah. Oh, my and God. In, and in fourth grade, yeah. I did not – those did not register to me yep. as real words. I was like, yep. Yep. filial – are those made-up words? Yep. Is this – or is this like a, a pinging thing? <laughs> like what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who knows yeah. filial? Yeah. yeah, And he was ex- trying to explain the concept, <laughs> saying this is a very central concept in Chinese yeah. culture and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And it just didn't work. Like there was yeah. just as as in in English, I just couldn't grasp yeah, what he yeah. was talking about. Yeah, yeah. There's one that's quite powerful, and we we were yeah. kidding about it, but this concept of uh, uh, being being human. <laughs> Oh, oh Torin, yeah. Ni Torin. <laughs> Whether, you know, I would have heard it in, 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 in Hakka and in Hokkien, and, but exactly the same words, actually. Yes. And yeah. uh, it means something that is difficult to uh, uh, translate. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. No, yeah. So. I mean, Swanee mentioned filial piety because in Korean school, we had the same problem. Like, as soon as we got to, like, that word, it's like everything kind of came to a screeching halt. Because now it's not just the word in Korean. It's just what the hell does that even mean in English? Which yes. Was our primary yes. language. So it's like we yes. had to like translate across like two different languages. It was like th- like moving in 4D through this right. the vector of this one one phrase here. So I distinctly right. remember that day. Like right. people were getting mad. Um, yeah. And I, th- I just I think stepping through those kinds of breaches is what may risk, you know, orientalization where we say things like ancestor worship. Yeah, good God. You know, yeah. which is like, okay, that sounds like pagan rituals, right? Like that's not, there's yep. a there's something yep. lost there that yep. in the term, it, it's yep. too anthropological in yep. in in a way. Yep. Um, and so it's an objective term, but can we understand it subjectively? I mean, we could yep. describe the behaviors, we could describe... The, cert, the specific obligations that we have to visit, you know, are, um, you know, the, the uh, you know, where our grandparents' only, yeah. remains are, yep. et cetera. Yep. But there isn't, you know, being bicultural, I think there's a subjective experience of that. Yes. That I just don't find exists in no, America. Not only is it, it's very interesting that you call it anthropological. It's not only anthropological, it's, uh, it's Christian and Western in 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 its conception of religion so there you have these answers mm, you, yeah. you have this practice mm-hmm. and you call it worship and you put it in this category religion which is also a a a, a category from outside so i mean this is a problem that you know the jesuits had when they went to china in the 17th century uh how to categorize this and how to think about it because thinking about it one way this is absolutely sort of uh, incompatible with christianity then uh, in another way, no, these are, this is how they would say to, to reconcile themselves to it and to permit it, so to speak, among their converts. Uh, the Jesuits said, well, this is ancestor veneration, you know, uh, so this is culture. But the, the, the very distinction between culture, religion, uh, we have to be careful of that because we don't experience it. I would maintain we, we, to the extent that we inhabit our own skin in a way, we don't experience it as Chinese people or Asian people. We don't experience it like that. Yeah. I agree. I, I agree. agree. And I think, uh, the, I think maybe one of the fundamental issues here is a particular, and I, don't, I won't even say Western, I think this is a peculiarly American phenomenon, yeah. treating culture as a distinct uh, phenomenon. Absolutely. 
that yeah. is that is that yeah. can be that can be divorced from things like history geography right. it can even right. be distinct from the people that's an interesting thing about the american conception of culture it can be divorced culture can be divorced from people yes it can exist as its own almost uh almost as its own entity in and of itself and i think that's yep. a perception that no one else on earth uh has alienable like fungible transferable mm -hmm. Transfer it, it, it IP operates like a currency. It, it yeah, as intellectual IP, property. Right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. I think yeah. that's one exactly of the, that. that was one of the yeah. you know one yeah. of the things that, and I'm not yeah. criticizing necessarily people who have lobbed this act this uh this complaint. Uh, you know, cultural appropriation. Right. The entire right. discourse around it. Some part of it was always a little strange to me because it hinged around this idea of culture as kind of a as an object that's passed around. They can be it can separated. Be stolen. It can be stolen. It can be stolen. Uh, yeah. Um which and like and that, that's not to justify, you know, people, you know, taking elements of people's actual culture and practices, living practices, and then completely desecrating them. Um but it does it did it did uh emphasize to me just how unique Americans are and in, in feeling completely in a deep kind of a peculiarly American form of alienation. Of its yep. people, yeah. So when you talk about like 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 ancestor veneration or worship or anything, we're talking about a practice. But the I think one of the problems when you trans try to translate that and convey that to an American um, is that it seems like it's a it's a distinct thing. Yeah. When in 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 reality, it's again you have to pull this back into four D. It's talking about people. Not it's not just a one on one relationship between a, an individual. Who necessarily practices this and their, you know, immediate genealogy? It's a respect for, uh, for respect for their position in this 4D space that they occupy, right? The geography right. that they occupy, the the language, the country that they are in, their social relations. It's a it's a deep respect for how intricate and interconnected uh, we all truly are, and it's just right. a uniquely Western. And and I think America is just at the extreme edge of this, where yep. we've where you know the industrialization of the 20th century kind of uprooted all of that in the American consciousness. Uh, so yep. you know to, a, to 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 such an extent that we can actually see these things uh, as distinct elements from each other and not a cohesive whole. So it's very easy for that mind to look at them and be like, oh, these peculiar people who are so chained to their history, you know. And it's I think it was in vogue to 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 look down on that and say these are not advanced people. The truly uh, enlightened, um, actualized people are the ones who are able to to separate themselves from that. Liberate themselves. Yes. Liberate. Yes. And, that, that, mm -hmm. and I think this that's a really, Western yeah. liberal, yeah. a uniquely yeah. liberal conception that we Absolutely. have basically achieved a kind of utopia here on earth. Everything that has come before that, insofar it has value, it only has value in leading up to this this utopia we enjoy today. Anything that doesn't serve it has to be shed. That's a, that's a very we're, very we're eloquent ex, um, <laughs> description of this, uh, and 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 I, I agree entirely. Um, it's you know this really hits deep and 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 far back. It's it, you're describing uh, a um, a form of modernity. You're, you're describing a kind of um, and and it's not just modernity in 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 a vague sense. It's it's Anglo Protestant as well. And it's the means through which um, people like others are, are, are racialized and uh, and particularized, while it occupies for itself 
a kind of uh, a, a center, an unmarked uh, universal center. It, it, pro it provides uh, the person who imagines uh, herself inhabiting this a, a view from nowhere, you know. The, the subjectivity here is a kind of view from nowhere and you are the particular. So you have this thing called uh, history or culture and so on. And, th and these are things that I can take apart. There is some you, there's some, uh, you know, one day you will realize that it's separate from all this or, or can be liberated in some this, way. Uh, this, this. No, I think this is often mm -hmm. referred to yeah. as the, your authentic yeah. self or something. Yes, like that, yes, you know. your authentic self. The and, true and human is, underneath exactly. all this cultural baggage. Right, right. You know. Which is yeah. very, like the ultimate in alienation. Very, some, very like, alienating. If you I mean, believe it's, it's you're presented, in, if, yeah, you actually accept <laughs> that ideology. <laughs> you are aiming, you are trying hard to become the loneliest person on earth. You're basically exactly. saying every influence that I've ever had in my life, parental, social, you know, cultural, you know, the influences from my the time and place that I occupy, all of that is actually a corrupting force. There has to be exactly. something pure, a pearl of pure essence, ineffable essence that's fun functionally unknowable. So distinct, it's unknow unknowable to anybody else, uh, and and your your life's work is then to shed all of that and, and just tap into that pure essence, that the pure unknowable, like authentic, right? And I think a yeah, pure I think that will, view, a pure will, pure will, and I think yeah. and unbounded, mm -hmm. and I think that unbounded. there is mm -hmm. what what Jess is saying is absolutely right. I think that there is this inference that we deeply buy into in in America. Um, that, you know, culture um, in the traditional sense, which I think is something that we're actually waging war on, um, both both sort of metaphorically and also literally, I would say, uh, quite literally, is that um, culture is an inherently sort of, uh, traditional culture is an inherently sort of arbitrary thing. Yeah. Um, that That is done without reason. And, and all of it is meant... Um, to subjugate and dim the sort of, you know, unbounded self, this Onrondian sense of self, unbounded self and potential. Um, and, and traditional culture is merely a uh, prison, an arbitrary prison that has no justification um, that, that keeps the soul bounded. And I think this is just an extremely attractive notion. Yep. Um, when you're seeing the sort of rocket ship of progress, technological progress that we've seen, probably unprecedented in the universe. Yes. <laughs> you know, maybe. <laughs> you know. Well, we can get into how it slowed down <laughs> or, or, or what mm. happens when it sort of when it slows stops down, yeah. and stagnates here in the place where it's, which is supposed to be, it's, uh, you know, the, the, the acme of, of, of this process, of this yeah, historical we were supposed process. To, we're supposed to be in the apotheosis yeah. of that yes. industrialization. Exactly. And we're finding out that, no, we, we actually created our own version of hell. And it's, it's not actually entirely clear how we're going to dig ourselves right. out, if right. we even can. Right. I threw the baby uh, out with the bathwater, it seems, huh? There was uh, this yeah. project of a kind of culture or this notion of uh, actually of aculturalism. Uh, this critique of culture Teen was talking about or this um, um, is, uh, it, it often comes through the language of, of, of freedom. Um, so, yes. yeah, we have freedom. That's how it's you, you have culture. You have culture. You have history. You're bogged down in history and so on. And we have freedom. And it turns out that freedom is, a, that what we see today is a particular form of culture itself and its 
fairly in, in many ways degenerate um, or that this but in in the end I, I want to say that this whole category of culture we need to think about or, or, or you know poke at with a stick and 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 not take for granted for example it as you say it divorces us from from history it presumes to divorce us from history uh, but also from uh, ways of making a living uh, so does your culture have anything to do with your attitudes towards money, for example, or your uh, or, or, or wealth or uh, material goods, you know, how you provide for your children, uh, those types of things. It's as if you could remove that from, from, from culture. And very importantly, from um, allegiances or relationships with certain people in certain places. Uh, yeah, I think or, or, or the having of, a, of, a, of, of some notion of sovereignty. And here you absolutely you, exactly yeah, yeah. absolutely yeah. um i think the the way i thought about it and you know um this is just off the cuff stuff so you know this yeah. probably sounds kind of i i don't i don't i find the i find the uh discussion about culture here in america and i can't really say i'm tapped into the conversation going on elsewhere either i just have this to to go on but so it, something feels very, very incomplete to me in that uh, nobody discusses culture from the framework of analyzing what culture does, right? There's a lot mm -hmm. of conversation about what culture is or how to practice it or how to preserve it or something like that. There's not actually a lot of serious thought given to what culture actually does. And I think that's yeah. actually central to what culture is, actually. Mm -hmm. And this might, mm -hmm. be for me, this closed the gap in wondering why it felt so empty for me. Right. Uh, like to me, to answer some questions about what I see in it, Americans doing, actually. Um, so what I mean by that is that to me, the definition of culture, I don't know if any philosopher or theorist or social scientist that supports this or not, I don't really care. Uh, but for me, if a working definition of a culture is, is a time-tested set of practices uh, that a group of people and this is always in the plural. You cannot develop a culture by yourself, right? A group, right. a time-tested set of practices, beliefs, values uh, that a group of people have have um, have used to survive in their circumstances. Right. Um, it has to be time-tested and has to be pro um, uh, pro human. Like if it's if it doesn't serve the needs of these people, that culture will die, and chances are that means that the people will die. So I think a culture has to it has to have that authenticity and legitimacy that only time and the the uh, the tests that just naturally come to people through the course of time uh, can provide. So I think part of the problem here is a uh, like when we talk like especially as you know as as racialized people talk about culture we talk about it very very in a very very kind of um. I don't know, hollow way. We talk like the specific foods that people eat, right? right? Maybe spe special holidays, maybe a little bit mm -hmm. of lip service mm -hmm. to like, you know, oh, this is traditionally harvest time. And this is when the rice is, uh, it comes in, or this is when the wheat comes in. And this yeah. is, you know, typically when we celebrate this or, you know, uh, the moon, uh, the lunar holidays or something. Not a lot of people really spend a lot of time talking about culture as a collective practice that that nurtures collectives as a whole. Like, I think for me, like culture to me is like, if I believe this X, Y, and Z. Nothing. Yeah. Yeah. If I, yeah. to me, this is like my definition of like the way I would practice it is that I see, I see for myself, okay, this belief, this practice, this kind of value, 
I, I, if I hold on to that and actually implement that in my life, I can be relatively sure that something good will come of it. Right. I, you know what? I here's here's where I'm trying to go with this is hmm. that I don't think it matters how we define culture. Right. Uh, what I'm saying is that culture. I think it wait, does, on based a, on I, the topic that you want to talk about. No, it does. Well, this is this is my point. Okay. That and and I'm bringing this up, this whole point, this whole thing, because we're all bicultural, right? And I think that being bicultural in America, where your home culture, so to speak, is um, a traditional culture that is not very doesn't map well to what we would call American culture, right? Um, I'm bringing this up because there's like a there, it's a complicated thing to be. And I think mm-hmm. it can be problematic in terms of, and I, I think we see this in what we call Asian American culture or in the Asian diaspora. We see a lot of cultural confusion. We see a lot of strange ideas coming out, right? Uh, we see a lot of like mental health issues. We see a lot of depression among, I think, I think Asian Americans are actually outliers for depression. Am I wrong? And so I think there's a host of problems with this. And I don't think we can think and necessarily map our way out of this by defining culture or coming to an understanding of what's going on. I, what I'm trying to say is when you're a bicultural person in this, in the, in the, in the same sense that we're bilingual, let's say, right. Hmm. Is that it's a very subjective thing. Like culture to me, the important thing about it is not how it's defined or how it's objectively classified or described but it's the subjective experience of it. And you know when you're when you're culturally literate and you know when you're not. The same way that you know you're literate in a language or you're, or you're fluent in a language and you know when you're not. And when you're fluent in a language, like, you know how like all the things we talk about, whether this is an Indo-European language or, you know, whatever, or what sort of, is it a romance language? What does it use? this type of grammar or that type, nobody cares. Like when you're actually speaking the language, I don't need, you know, a linguistics expert to tell me uh, the, the, the specific aspects of the language that I'm currently speaking. It's just a thing that I do. Does that make sense? Like that, I think that's what I'm trying to get at here is that I think culture is a very powerful force in the same way that language is. It's well beyond the individual English is well beyond the individual English speaker. I can't make up my own language as I go along. I mean, individual people may alter the language, may kind of push it in certain directions, but the language as a whole is something that's much larger than any one person. But I think that the thing, the problem that I see in a lot of Asian American culture is that we, you know, the people who, um, write about it. And I brought in the email I sent to you, I brought up the sympathizer and native speaker as two examples of this, where the protagonist, you know, is caught between two different cultures in an espionage type plot in the back. So there always seem to be a traitor to one side or the other. And they eventually go crazy because they're sort of not sure which side is the authentic self, which I think is a very telling sort of direction that they took that story in, which is like, biculturalism as um you know a burden biculturalism as something that prevents you from having an authentic self uh my point being that 
I just think that there's just there's there's too much assertion of culture as an individual practice. Yeah. Um, and thus this belief that we can sort of tailor culture, meaning like, okay, well, I'm Chinese American, right? Well, see, my my culture is like, you know, this sort of hybrid of the two. And I think that's as ridiculous as saying that my language is a hybrid of Chinese and English. Mm-hmm. It's not. I either speak English or I speak Chinese. I can't speak in between the two. And look, I'm not saying that there aren't cultural, uh, there isn't cultural um, uh, interaction and there, are, there aren't any liminal spaces. There aren't any forms of cultural you know, hybrid forms, um, just as there is, or there are pidgin languages, right, that are sort of the mix of the two. But what I'm saying is fundamentally at core, I think it would behoove Asian Americans to be a little bit more, and I'm talking to myself really here, um, a little more humble in terms of like the individual's capacity to affect culture for their own, to tailor it for their own mm-hmm. ends. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that that part... Um... Uh, just touched on um, earlier too, as and, and specifically about this uh, uh, against against thinking of uh, culture as this individualized thing or as a matter of choice, and that way lies um, you know the the wreck. I mean, you if you think in those terms, you're in big trouble. It seems to me that those um, those works that you mentioned um, uh, do precisely that. They accept that as the problematic. Once you've accepted those as your starting terms, you end up with this thing where you're either this or you're that. But the the problem is accepting that framing of the cultural problem, uh, which is to say an individualized and and modern one, uh, which which creates a kind of uh, assumes a kind of center, um, a being that's pre before their sociality and before culture, there is me and authentic me. Um, so, so that's that whole complex of issues around being modern and being uh, American, um, and and as a consequence of accepting that, you stand in this place and you you find yourself between what you think are two cultures. I like the way in which uh, you you set up uh, earlier in in conversation uh, when when you wrote um, about about this model of um, this metaphor of liminality, which people which it's become. Uh, fashionable Quite a buzzword liminal spaces uh, yeah exactly yeah. it's a buzzword mm-hmm. oh my god if you're kind of around academia as i sometimes am it's uh you know it's the, the it's the buzz term um it's it's supposedly it's like agency you know used to be it, <laughs> it, it, it yeah. you know uh, it sort of describes and dignifies this this in-betweenness right our, our asians being in between our home culture and um mainstream American culture in this place. But um, I, I would submit, I mean, that's a, uh, that's a metaphor that I, I would uh, in many ways uh, question and reject. You know, this notion of liminality comes from social anthropology. Um, there's an anthropologist, uh, Arnaud uh, Van Genep. Um, I think in 1909, he had this uh, work, The Rites of Passage, in which he identified, and that's where the term comes from, uh, you know, looking at myth, at, at actually at um, ceremony, at rituals all over the world, and all kinds of ritual, marriage, initiation, uh, coronation, and so forth. He identifies three stages in this. 
Um, and the first stage is a kind of uh, stage of um, uh, separation in which, you know, the, the, the person or the group who are to be initiated or to, or to be married or uh, crowned or whatever are, are separated from the rest. And then there's a stage of transformation. And then at the very end, uh, incorporation back into society in, in this new form. Uh, you you recognize this tripartite structure. You know, Joseph Campbell had a popular version of this in his notion of the hero. Uh, the hero sort of, again, separates himself and then he goes out, right? And then he comes back sort of empowered and a new sort of being. But the liminality is this supposedly transitional space in between. And, you know, in describing where we are, it's it's really sometimes like, you know, lipstick on painting lipstick on a pig actually it because it's it's fashionable I, I think because you know it seems to 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 dignify uh, where you are because the liminal space is supposed to be this space later another anthropologist Victor Turner this uh, talked about it and said you know this is the space which is in which there's tremendous possibility because you are neither here nor there you are betwixt and between so, okay, so these writers uh, catch on to that and say, oh, yeah, you're, you're in between uh, one and another, okay? And in this, in this space... It's a, it's a liberal's dream. It's a liberal's dream, yeah. No, like, for example, <laughs> everyone knows about, like, in, in hazing, for example, you know, before you're accepted into that group, they haze the crap out of you, right? You are in between, they break, you, you reverse the hierarchy uh, and so on. And you are, you know, to, this is a space in between, the, the concept implies within it a stage. You are not, it's not a place to live in. You know, this is not anybody's identity to live in. You are in between one and the other, and there's a definite telos to it. You're going to a certain place. It's uh, to dignify it by saying that this is a very creative space in between, you know, it's liminal. Nowadays, it's used for everything, right? For, for you know, uh, uh, sort of, transgressive gender for any any kind of identity Every the only misunderstood souls Every in the lonely, space. Yeah, yeah that's right lipstick on a pig you maybe you're just you know fucking alienated maybe you're just nothing in between this right. but you this is not a space you can live in okay and yeah. i would i would really be against thinking and dignifying sort of asian americanness as a kind of betweenness yes that's what i'm getting at and no way I think just yeah, what, I think that gets a, yeah. what no, I'm, I was ahead. trying to point out about why it doesn't matter um, in terms of how we think about this. I'm saying that because I get super frustrated trying to explain to people who don't have the subjective experience of what uh, we as bicultural people might understand about a traditional culture, but from also, but the ability to contrast that. See, I've always thought of bi biculturalism as being a little bit like binocular vision. You have certain extra sense, like certain perceptive abilities that are beyond someone who's monocultural, I think. And I might be self, self aggrandizing there, but I think it's true that, you know, you can see the contrast between these two states of being. No, I think you're correct. If nothing else, it doesn't give you insight into every way of being, but at least opens you up to the possibility that there are different ways of being. I, yeah, but so yes, it, it does, does give but you I like a stereoscopic it, kind of I just ability it, to process. Yeah, but I just don't think it works because I just don't think, and this is this is something that um, John and I had, t we talked about in the Twitter space, uh, America Watcher stuff, where the question was, can 
are Chinese capable of understanding Americans and are and and corollary are Americans capable of understanding Chinese? And I will posit that I think Chinese can understand Americans, but Americans cannot understand Chinese. There is I would agree with that. Yeah, I, I just don't think that Americans who aren't literate in Chinese culture and in for fact in and I'm just saying Chinese because I'm Chinese, but like really any traditional culture. Um, I don't think Americans are able to conceptualize even what it means to live within a traditional culture. Um, whereas I would say that uh, Chinese and Koreans, for example, two very distinct cultures related, or we could pick even further apart, say Chinese and Russian or Indian and Korean or so, you know, wh- whatever you want. You can even go European. I Perhaps, think Europeans yeah, I think so. have a Hungarian and the, uh, uh, Japanese. The, yeah. I think the peculiarity here is like I had never really liked the framework of the high versus low uh, context culture. Uh, John, I'm sure you're familiar with that that framework. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, it's a pretty it's a pretty common one out there. Uh, just to just to uh, summarize for the audience, you know, um, high culture typically refers to I believe it's an anthropological term, right, to describe different, you know, kind of a. Um, the ether of different social organizations, like the, the, what, what forms the glue that, that binds people across these, these organizations, uh, social organizations. Uh, high context refers to um, uh, like, okay, low context culture is probably the easier one to start with there. So uh, typically, typically characterized by people being very, di- needing to speak a lot in very direct terms. Rules have to be explicitly stated um, so uh, there, so low context meaning that there is there is very little shared context between any two individuals in this this social grouping. So everything has to be stated upfront, very directly. Um, everything is upfront and on the table, and and that's the that forms the kind of the back the expected backbone of communication for people who are in a low context culture. On the flip side of that is the high context culture, and I think a lot of ink has been spilled in America about say Japan. Uh, without really understanding what they were looking at here. So a high context culture is where a lot of the communication is actually unspoken. Mm-hmm. It's kind of crass or rude or aggressive, like almost violent to just be stating a lot of these things up front. A lot of it is subtle rule, social rules that everyone is expected to just simply abide by and understand. There's ritual around these interactions and almost none of that is is to be needs to be stated up front. Right. Uh, correct right. me if I'm, I, I, I probably have yeah, some exactly. of the details wrong, but in broad strokes, that's basically what it is. Yeah. And I think, I um, think that's the Zorin. <laughs> that's the, uh, yeah. uh, how to be a, you know, what Chinese would say, how to be a person. Mm-hmm. So yeah, like no, I've, I've read yeah. like, like, um, like yeah. business guides written in like the eighties and nineties, you know, when, when everybody was in, in America was enamored with Japan uh, and a lot of a lot of people were trying to, you know, write guides on how to navigate mm. the business culture, and that you know it would also always boil down to these these rules um, without really being able to encapsulate what the hell is going on here. Uh, like they're talking about, like, oh, you need this is th- these are the times when you need to bow this this and this and this, and this is how you need to navigate a business dinner. This is how you need to speak to somebody with more seniority. This is how you need to speak to someone with less seniority. Um, so to a it, it it kind of is what. Uh, what you would expect a, somebody from a low context culture to write about a high context culture. The difference being with Japan, there was an element of respect to it. So there was a legitimacy automatically granted that we don't quite get it, but we're here to crack it and we love you anyway uh, for it. Uh, but 
really, you know, there's kind of, and it's the literature treats these, these, uh, these kinds of cultures as equivalent. I disagree. For one thing, wait, I think uh, America. Sorry, sorry. Wait, wait. I'm, I'm a little lost. Which there, the literature treats what as equivalent? The oh, low, high the and low culture. Like meaning both, they're just on a spectrum. That kind of just, thing. They're just different. They're the same. They're equal. Uh, they're just this, they're just how different people like. You're either high or low culture. Oh, uh, okay. But, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's just, they're just like it's a it's a lever you pull in categorizing cultures. One's low. One's yeah. High. Okay. Yeah, but right. you know, in thinking about it. There's really only one low context culture. That's you know that would be like the the United the modern, States, the, the modern liberal culture. Yeah, the modern liberal. Yeah. There's only one. Like the U.S., Canada, maybe Australia. These Western these, Europe you know, too, to West, the extent they, that they follow us. Yeah, to the extent that they are that they have now, you know, Which come under the, the aegis of you know basically the United States. Uh, that's it. Everyone mm-hmm. else comes from a mm-hmm. high context culture, and I would argue yeah. that. It's not; they're not equivalent states. I argue that a low-context culture is actually probably an, an immature, a new or, or unformed culture. They're not actually cultures. This is just a social grouping of people that happen to be in proximity with one another and have to coexist and and do business and live next to each other. This is not. This is something a little bit less than what I would consider a full, in a full, uh, a fully fleshed out, developed culture. This is, everything, uh, everything what, else, everyone else in the world uh, comes from. I think cultures evolve into high context. I think that's like you're. T- you brought up the example of you know who fights for the check, right? Yeah. I think that's a ritual that's embedded in in deep, deep layers of social meaning. Mm-hmm. I like David. I mean, I'm rereading oh, David. I, for some Plan. reason, I thought you meant like the Czechoslovakian. Oh no, the Czech. Oh like the, no, like yeah, the, like the, the dinner check. check. Yeah, it's a big check. thing in French culture as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, 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 yeah. I've French seen like Middle Easterners. I've seen yeah. Persians. Yeah. You know, yeah. I've seen South. I. This is just. This is how everybody does this. Yeah. Just America is the outlier. That, here. That's why I said in the email. I I use the term traditional culture, just mm-hmm. as I don't think that's an exact term or anything. You know, but I just think it's more like what basically what came before modern American liberalism. And I think actually, you know, um, and I said this. I I don't really totally buy the idea that America is just too young and it takes millennia to build culture. I don't believe that's true. I don't think culture necessarily has to be ancient and deep. Uh, I just think that... um, No, it has to survive. That's the thing. It doesn't necessarily have to be ancient. Like, it's not necessarily the time. It's the um, the challenges that come with time. Right. If it can survive that, then then it'll thrive. Right, but the problem with America, you know, if it was time... Um, you know, things should be getting better, and I think, in fact, if no, you look it could in, just be a bad culture. It's it could just simply have gotten too top heavy before I, it formed I, something. I don't think that's necessarily true. I think that. Well, you see, I think that all traditional culture around the world is under assault right now. You know, I think that um, the 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 prog like technological progress is so disorienting. Mm-hmm. that it can render all cultures um, in danger. And I think that happened here first, because I think America really stepped into, you know, the breach of like hypermodernity before. Well, the that's the modernization the thesis. All oh, really? was supposed okay. to wither away mm. in much the same way as, as, as it has in, 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 the, in the US. We were all supposed to go in that direction. And that was a and utopian supposed idea. To be, and it was supposed to be inevitable, and utopian, right? Yeah. Like, and we were supposed to con- converge on on a thing which was Amer- America, 
we just got there first. Like wherever you're, we're supposed to end up as a species. We just happen to get to the moon base first, and then we'll leave the doors open for you when you all get here. uh, Is the utopian idea? I feel right. And you know, when you go back to that era, I mean, it is shocking, like how far in the future America was was in, say, the 1960s versus the rest of the world, like the things that we were doing, you know, uh, versus the rest of the world. It is shocking, like how far uh, ahead in in the technological timescale we were. Um, But now that's spread around the world. And I think that there was, I think America has has had plenty of time to develop culture. Uh, And in fact, I think America's Americans were obsessed with it. Um, I don't think so. I, I, we can I think, debate this. Um, I don't I know. Think we, I mean, I think Frank Lloyd Wright is a perfect example, and he kicked off, and and you could just you could just see it in the in in American architecture, and the way that there was this real passion to define a vernacular type of architecture that was distinctly American. Frank Lloyd Wright called it Usonian, U.S. Onian. Yeah. yeah. Um, this idea that. The American, um, the American pol- public, the, the the middle class, like the, the 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 big fat middle of America, needed to have a certain character to it. The very it needed idea. to have a certain yeah. It had to have a certain uniquely American imprimatur on it. And these 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 mid century and early twentieth century architects were. Obsessed with this notion. I mean, now we don't see this. We don't see star architects trying to define what the middle class American suburban tract home is going to be. But they were doing that with the case study homes and and, and all that. And I I I don't know if that necessarily proves my point, but I do think that if you look at <coughs> the the cultural priorities of America <clears throat> prior to I'd say the 1970s. You know, I, there there was a real sense that that American that cultural progress was something that America had to care deeply about, and I think people really did care about it. At least, at least some some did. Yeah, I think, that's right. I think I if the progress, that. if the prosperity had lasted a little longer and were a little bit more evenly distributed, it would have had a chance. But going back to you know, I don't know if. I mean, it's definitely a visual, like, like architecture, you know, fashion, you know, the way people dress, eat. Those are all hallmarks. And there definitely is a distinct American flavor to all of those things. And I don't question that, you know, people were talented. People were hard at work at building this new American cultural vernacular. And we're largely success, successful. But, you know, this is where, you know, you, you kind of have to, I at least, uh, tried to think about the separation between like the aesthetics of culture, the trappings of culture, and like the deeper principles it serves. Like the case study homes, you know, the American suburban, the vernacular of the suburban home, right? What was that still serving? It was still serving this relatively new social uh, construct called the nuclear family, which was driven by, you know, the need to, uh, to uh, I guess, uproot traditional labor mobilize traditional labor and, and 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 send it out where it needed to go uproot them from like the traditional like like geographic based uh limitations of the prior of prior era's labor markets right so the nuclear family which is a new a new construct right yeah. so yeah. there there were huge propaganda engines built to serve that 
to present this as the ideal vision of this is the like so the cultural value here is like the value of the nuclear family a woman and a man mm -hmm. um typically the man is the breadwinner the woman mm -hmm. is the homemaker there's there's children but they live in their own home. They're going to need that a very beautiful home. They're going to need yeah. their nice cars. So the propaganda engine is there to make that seem like the best social organization, the best way we could possibly live. It still haunts the American uh, right. It does. You know, that, um, that notion, they, they, they don't temporalize it the way uh, you do uh, so well. Uh, but that is the, 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 the America that you want to make, uh, they want to make great again. That is the promise. That's yeah, basically that's the promise. promise. It's very nice. Like you, you follow yeah. the rules. You, you, you work hard. You keep your head down. You don't take handouts, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, so on and so forth. You are, you get a beautiful, smiling wife and your your nice home and your, you know, two new cars in the driveway, happy children. Uh, that is the promise, and I think a lot of that the the political anger on that side is to try to claim on that promise. Um, again, kind of. So it's 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 both ahistorical and a little and very shallow. In its own way, but you know, at least it's. I I will give them credit that they actually have a a kind of a vision of a of a life that of a, a promise of a life that they want that they feel this current social moment is not giving to them. I think they are being deeply misled on who has take stolen the stream, yes, yeah. um, yeah. etc. But you know, the core of that I don't think anybody can really. I don't think I can really. I don't have it in me to criticize. You know, the anger at, at having that promise. Uh, yanked away from it necessarily. Yeah, I like I, I like this it. I like this discussion a lot because this goes to the heart of what I'm trying to express here, which is very difficult because um, I, I feel like the there's this to me I've always felt this way. There is a hard discontinuity between Americanness and Chineseness. There is not there is not a smooth band of transition from one to the other, and what I've noted, what I've felt for a long time in my life is this, when I was younger, I would say in the 80s and 90s, and maybe even a little bit into the 2000s, um, having been uh, exposed to life that, that my cousins were living in Taiwan, which is radically different, mm. right? That I always kind of held out hope that America was developing along the lines of something that would be mappable, though very different, but it would be mappable onto culture, the culture that I found in the way of life that I found in foreign countries. I felt the same way about when I went to Europe that I did about um, Asia. And there was, a, there was just a certain quality to life there where the people seemed a lot more integrated into their surroundings People seem to know each other, even though they didn't know each other. They talk to each other as if they knew each other, at least from my perspective as an American. Hmm. Um, there was That's the a, magic of that high context uh, culture talking. Yeah, like you, a lot you, of yeah, a lot basically of this, see someone else from that culture, and you you can kind of preload this this yeah, preliminary yeah. mental model of who yeah. that person is. Yeah. You have touchstones and, in common. And now I would say that what I'm trying to get at here. Uh, because, look, underlying all of this to me um, in terms of priority is the notion of, like, mental stability. Because I do think it's a very destabilizing time, especially for people um, who are trying to make... I, I think if you're just going to, like, 
kind of bury your head in the sand, you're kind of safe in a certain way. But if you kind of, if you are paying attention to what's happening, and I think it is very, it's a very destabilizing time. And the reason I think that I think it's important is, I'm saying that being bicultural is a stabilizing thing, the way that being bilingual is a stabilizing thing. It's a positive. And the way the assumptions that have been made up till now, I think, about this liminality, this this caught between two worlds notion, is this idea that we need to be fully hybridized but integrated people. We should not be comfortable with the idea that there's this hard cultural discontinuity in us between our American side and our Asian side. We should be integrated wholes, and I think that's a very poor, like a very damaging assumption. And I think. People should be very comfortable having the ability to subjectively code switch between one cultural context, say American, and another, say Korean or you know Chinese or whatever. Um, it's it's good to have that ability, and I don't think it's. I think it's this insistence and this deeply held uh, commitment to the idea that we need to be fully integrated, authentic selves. Um, yeah. That that. That yeah. that cannot exist, you know, like this between two worlds. You can't do that. Like, okay, well, then which one is the right one? Exactly. exactly. I think that commitment is very destabilizing now. And, you know, and I spent a lot of my youth thinking about this because I, I just noticed this weird fucking, this strange suburban American ennui alienation Growing up in America, and I knew everyone else felt it. It was in the culture, cultural works. It was in the movies. It was in the books. It was in the way people, it was in the music, everything. And it, it is something that when I went abroad, I didn't see them suffer, people suffering the same thing. And then I was, I was thinking, this is something uniquely American. And you know what I mean? Like that just sort of like lost in the burbs on we of like the nineties and two thousands. And it's got only gotten worse. And it's got, I think that whatever that was, that seed of alienation that I felt in the eighties and nineties. And I'm just, I'm sure you, you, you kind of understand what I'm saying. I think that was a fairly universal feeling back then. In fact, it, it, it almost became a culture unto its own right to be an alienated suburban teen, right? That's where I mean, all we that. We did a, we did a podcast about the movies of the of 1999 specifically. Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That yeah. entire then, yes, yeah. So these are so you know if they were made in 1999, they were talking about filmmakers and actors who kind of grew up in that post-war suburban boom. So these are the people that actually won uh, the the American dream, and they're now spending their adulthoods unpacking that and kind of revealing the hollowness or the lie at the heart of it. That I, th- it I don't think isn't. they can square the circle. I think they're still struggling with it. And not only that, I think the conditions have gotten worse for the next generations. I think whatever we felt as a mild sense of dislocation has actually gotten worse to the point where we may not recognize that it's actually the same thing, but yeah. much worse. And, you know, I'm seeing... I mean, take I, a stand I, for the ethnic ethnoburb. I think that's a, that's a diametric op- opposite. That's where I grew up, you know. I look back on my childhood as a as a wonderful time, actually, in that sense. And I see th- and I see the most robust, like pro human vibe coming from those communities. On the outside, these are the these are the the, the dreaded suburbs that you know, uh, polite, well heeled media will have you sneer at. But for s- some subsets of people, these are the safest, most vibrant communities to be in. 
Mm. Perhaps. Um, perhaps that's the case. But I would say that we still have this problem, <laughs> right? We still do. And, but, and, like, and, and, and I'm, to... what I'm getting at is that um, I think that being bicultural allows us, bicultural people are able to diagnose this problem and be more, be more confident in that diagnosis than I've observed Americans who aren't bicultural have been able to do. I feel like they're, a lot of Americans are sort of like swinging around in the dark and they know something's wrong. They know something's missing. I think bicultural people have a better understanding of what's missing because we can do like a, we can do like a, like a, some sort of compare, like a contrast analysis, you know, like we can see what's missing more clearly, if that makes sense. I think so. And I think the signal is out there too. Like, again, going back to like cultural appropriation, like if you go a little bit deeper then like just be like, why, you know, the typical, the, the typical answer is, Oh, you know, these are oblivious pe- white people, you know, full of white privilege. They're just, they, they just think the entire world belongs to them and they can partake of it as they choose. Um, that's probably definitely valid in some cases, but a little bit deeper than that. Like, well then why now? Why is this, such a phenomenon now um like you really see this you, you really see see a lot of like 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 white people who grew up in these suburbs really like deconstructing you know like wow the food i ate growing up was so terrible you know my family is so alienated um you know um there's a real i think i feel like they are getting the signal loud and clear there was something hollow and broken at the core of their their very quintessentially white middle class american existence that just simply is not living up to its its promise. It's not living up to what a culture needs to do, which is to provide a person with a toolkit to survive and thrive in their current environment. So a lot of people are reaching clumsily, stupidly, and you know, full and arrogantly a lot of time. Not not disagreeing with that, but I feel like these are all little signals uh, that mm-hmm. are that a lot of people are feeling the exact same way. I agree like with you. Like re- revealing yeah. the the that um, just saying that like yeah. whatever we were we were whatever cultural project we were on like that that wasn't the way that wasn't it we got to go we got to find something else. Um, like one metric really stands out to me. You know, like the like when I was growing up, uh, probably teen and John, you've probably heard this too. You know, a lot of the like you would see this on sitcoms a lot, sneering yeah. at like an adult who had to quote move back home, right? Like this was this was this was a mark of shame. You're supposed to be you 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 hit you know you hit adulthood, however you wanted to find that, and you're supposed to be on your own. You live on your own. Uh, then that's and that's you're supposed to be. It's kind of a joke that you know you have to like the the overreaching parent who wants to be involved in their adult child's life, and it's like a it's it's like a theme that the child is resisting that and pushing them away. And this is supposed to be how this is supposed to be the fully actualized adult. You're supposed to uh, run away from your parents. You're supposed to ditch your family. It's and that's that's what the pinnacle of what it means to be an adult. So to have Mm -hmm. to admit defeat and like, God forbid, move back home is the ultimate sign of failure, failure to thrive or failure to launch. I think there's even a movie called Failure to Launch. That's exactly about that. And then what do we see in the last handful of years? The number of of adults, not even just young adults, but adults who move in with family, their parents or siblings or whatever, has skyrocketed mm. in the last handful of years. 
So, you know, and this, and this is really just, this is how humans have always kind of organized themselves. It's actually an extreme abnormality, probably to sell appliances if you get down to it. Um, it's an extreme abnormality for people to be living alone or um, even the structure of the nuclear family. That's a historical right, aberration. Right. right. Yeah. As so is wanting to that- be close, young, young, uh, young families with young kids wanting to be proximately close to their own parents so mm-hmm. that they can have access to like fa- childcare, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The norm, like, that's, that's pretty, I feel that's like, new, in, I think, uh, like thinking to like trashy rom-coms or, you know, whatever. It seemed like the 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 peak existence would be to be a young adult in like New York or LA and and then your parents are in like Idaho or something or Wisconsin or something. That seemed like that's like the pinnacle of existence to be like literally ex- like separated from your family by thousands that's of miles. Very that's very American. Si- that's very American. Extremely the, American. the geography there plays plays a role. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, you move away and and you're you're half a continent away from from your mm-hmm. parents. Like it's a joke to have to yeah. go back yeah. to Wisconsin, or you know you yeah. you have to move in with your parents or something. Which, by the way, have you noticed a lot of um, Hallmark movies actually kind of reverse that? And it's exactly that. It's like a it's like a young woman who is is you know has a has a big time career in New York City or something has to go home for the holidays. And, you know, she has to slow down. It's very frustrating. But then she learns a true Christmas lesson about love and family mm-hmm. in her mm-hmm. hometown. <laughs> you know, like they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're actually kind of doing the reverse of this now. It's very interesting. Yeah, um, yeah totally. Um, so th- those currents have been in. And so, like, you see, like, the number of people, like, moving just simply cost of living. And I'm pretty sure that their mental health has probably improved because this is a more natural way for humans to live. You're not supposed to be this far away from your people. I think so. Um, when it comes, it's like it's like literally everyone else versus America. Like the, everyone else versus the American like appliance industry or something. Right. To be able to, <laughs> if you live alone, you, you can. Like I, I thought about this with my mom. Like, uh, we all do live apart. Like I'm, I live close by with to my mom, but you know, separate. And my brother and my dad are, are spend most of the time elsewhere. So it's like we have like for fa- we're family. We're all related. But across us, we have four instant pots, we have four air fryers, we have, you know, eight dryers and washers and what have you. So it's like, it was very profitable You're for economic, like- You guys are economic gift givers, miracles. Right. We need more of you. As opposed to if all four of us lived under the same roof, you know, then we cut that down by a factor of four, literally. Um, so, you know, so this was, this was very profitable for like American consumerism. Probably a big so when we talk about this big cultural push, I think that's actually laundering a lot of it. I think it was the effect of like pure like the sheer seduction of American uh, uh, consumerism and the possibility yeah. e- extravagant consumerism that was enabled by the post-war boom economy. This is more. Um, you, you spoke about two two types of, of move. One is a sort of cultural project uh, or culture. You, you talk about cultural appropriation, so to speak, right? Um, mm-hmm. Adopting culture, taking it on as a, as, as a project. And then this one, which is about relating to one's parents, actually, or um, to kin anyway, to family uh, anew. And it seems to me that this this second one is, is less, f- I mean, it's more difficult, but it's 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 a it's a safer route. It's, it's less less uh, par- paradoxical. I mean this that um, you know this idea of choosing culture is is inherently th- there's a paradox in it. 
um, the, the liberal idea um, that you can choose everything that yourself indeed is something you choose I think bedevils that 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 project yeah you don't yeah. you know the most important things some of the most important things about culture indeed about yourself are unchosen um, and these unchosen obligations have a way of become of of being how you become human it's through these things that you become human. And so if you've grown up to only privilege or only see and acknowledge those things that you choose, um, then these are, these are out of the way. And, and in, in you're, you're kind of doomed to, to set yourself up with the type of problem that you see in those, um, uh, those works that, that Teen was talking about. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, and the idea that you can be a blank slate and that the human project yeah. is to yeah. simply you you are born with an empty tray and your yes. job is to yes. um like you know your parents might throw an apple on it and a banana right. and a glass of milk and then you don't want that so you just yeah. throw all of that out and you pick yeah. you know something yeah. else to put on that yeah. tray that's a lie that's a yeah. fundamental lie that's not yeah. to say that people do have the right to you know pursue their pursue uh, everyone has one life to live. So, you, you know, what you do with your time and what you want to choose to spend your effort on, that's absolutely a legitimate project. Hmm. But this fiction that um, that you are a blank, a pure, that you're born this pure, uncorrupted, authentic right. self and yeah. all of society has just acted to corrupt it in some way. Hmm. Um, that's a very deep fiction that I would like to see more serious thought put to because that's a fundamental lie. That goes against everything we are as humans i mean to be an right. uh, an uninfluenceable you know state of being that's actually that's being an animal actually and even it's also they, be it's also it's showing truly instinctual i think it's showing a deep fear that americans have of the outside world and it's represented in our our commodities culture it's represented in the extreme amount of spending that we put towards physical security guns yeah, uh, yeah. Have, mm -hmm. like people are literally buying armored vehicles now uh you know people are spending enormous sums on home security and this is all about this concept of a man's fiefdom his home being his little fief and it's in when, it's in our law right uh, castle we, doctrine when we have a child, yeah, exactly. It's in our laws too. And when we have a child, our job is to protect the purity of the child and to keep out outside influences from sort of spoiling or degrading this pure, pure, pure essence of, you know, yeah. absolute pure beauty. And the outside world is nothing but a corrupting influence that interferes with the parents' yep. duty to protect the eternal innocence of that child. Yeah. And it's a very just inward-looking kind of fearful culture. And it also, I think there's a, a weird degree of like, I would say it, youth worship in, mm -hmm. in you know, where we don't want, we think that making hard choices is inherently bad and traumatic. We think that our children having to learn cultural norms and abiding by them is um, a trauma to their sense of agency and, you know, self-determination and, and purity, frankly. And it's this, the way, the, 
degree to which we've gone down that road is pretty. It's we've gone pretty far. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've yeah we've gone down that and, road, and there's actually a reactionary element to that force, right? And I see that in like the extreme ex, ex, the extremity of like identitarianism that you know, is, you know well-heeled was, li- liberal culture yeah, has adopted. It's all there is. Yeah, well, there is the identity. We're, we're it. I think yeah. that. Um, yeah. I don't know if you. I, I know Jess is familiar with Adam Curtis. Uh, I don't know. You, yep. uh, yeah. Yep. Okay. So, Adam Curtis's take on this, which I uh, am kind of pondering, because I think he might be right, is that once you've taken individualism out of the box, you can't put it back in. Meaning that a lot of that re- reactionary backlash to the hyper individualism of modern liberal society is not going to go away and that we're fundamentally in the West libertarians at heart, at bottom, irredeemable uh, uh, libertarians. And that's not going to change anytime soon. And so the answer is not going to be um, found in these reactionary politics, even though they, I agree there it's found everywhere now. And some of it is actually quite insightful. Hmm. Uh, You know, some of the worst, um, you know, uh, I would say cult leaders in these in these movements can say some of some deeply insightful things about the problem. Well, they know um, how to recruit. They know they would have the, their finger on exactly the pain the the, the pain points in the society where people where it's failing they, people. I think they they, they they even have a good diagnosis of the problem. I just don't think that they have the right cure. I think that yes, I think that's always uh, it. just just a sense of um, that. Um, you know, culture is not something sort of trivial. It's not an adornment. It's not something on the side. It has to do with your survival as as a as a community and um, and and as a people, which um, ultimately is connected with your survival as an individual as well. You you don't thrive without some um, collectivity, some community like that. And um, I I think things are. Where, where so-called liberal culture is today, it's it's at a point where it doesn't survive, actually. So, I mean, Tien, you were saying, well, you know, you, we can't change um, yeah, how they think. They're fundamentally libertarian in a certain way. But they're coming up against such profound contradictions in what they're trying to do, what the project is about, such self-defeating, such, such self-destructive um, you know, from the outside, one can see. Uh, you know, maybe I'm looking at it from the outside, but such profound self-destruction that um, something has to give. It can't. It can't go on like this, and uh, you know, people are literally dying yeah. of it. Yeah, this, and he, this, you this know, I white, think the this I, alienated I think, culture you're talking about, people are dying of it. Yeah, and I think the problem <laughs> with his diagnosis there, or his yeah. point there, is he yeah. might be talking about Adam Curtis. Uh, Adam Curtis oh, about this irredeemable oh, libertarianism. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. No, but I'm saying like you're saying that it won't survive, and that you know I think we're still kind of in that realm of what he was saying that we're that liberal culture can't back out of it. Okay. And I but think I think they can't the prob- see it. Well, I think the problem with that diagnosis, with that conclusion, is that uh, he may be referring to like individuals, like we may not be able to reform ourselves. Like he's saying, like I would not. Knowing what I know, despite my deep suspicions around liberal culture, I would not want to subsume myself into traditional religion or you know whatever. And 
And I think he's right. I think most people, even if they've gotten to mm-hmm. understand the crit- you know the critique, uh, would not themselves want to subsume themselves into something li- uh, yeah. remotely like a traditional culture. But that I think is just the, the person. I you know I don't know yeah, what that means exactly. for future generations. I don't exactly. you know what I mean. It's just the person, and it's that's just not the, the right unit of yeah. analysis. Exactly. Yeah, I think that's the issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. If the, the salvation is not going to come from the person, yeah. which which then means it it's going to be political. We have this way <laughs> of dividing divorcing culture from the political, and thinking of the political uh, divorce from culture. That um, that again leaves us uh, nowhere. But yeah, I mean, yeah, I, and, and I don't a, mean culture wars. Uh, yeah. Well, I think uh, I think maybe the cult, what we refer to culture wars, is is still you know, these are wars between like ideologies, basically. Yeah. yeah. Right. I'm interested. Um, like in they, culture they're both wars. cultural projects. Yeah. yeah. Both interested in dominating uh, the non-believer, so to speak. Yeah. So kind of imperialist in its own but, in their own ways. And using the the the, mech, the vehicle of politics to kind of enact this 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 vision. By the way, I think I, I think this might be a good point for us to uh, close out the like the this part of the pod, and then you guys want to continue on and do like a bonus. Yeah, we're, this is going somewhere good. I yeah, like this. <laughs> I, and I actually for the bonus part, I actually kind of want to turn this a little back on the original topic of Asian diaspora. Because I, I do right. think that what is, I think that the, the sort of like, um, what has often been interpreted as um, the, the weakness and the, the burden of being Asian diaspora in the Western world, which I see all the time. And I see a lot of like red pill takes and I see a lot of like just um, a lot of self-loathing involved in this. Mm. Um, I think from a separate when you know when when we view it from the frame of what we're talking about here, um, it's actually a huge strength, and I think that like realizing that for me personally has been fairly life changing. I'd say not to overstate it, but uh, you know maybe we could mm-hmm. turn the topic towards that a little bit in the mm-hmm. bonus. Uh, sure, anyway. yeah, nice okay. teaser. All right, I'm about to name drop Nietzsche. Oh <laughs> shit! Okay. <laughs> 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 Just, just putting it out there. Yeah, just, <laughs> just randomly. <laughs> you yeah. want to- mm-hmm.